The sermon scripture text this morning is from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth and the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. <clears throat> and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But, that, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who return to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim them, him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Please pray with me. Jesus, we ask for your grace to receive the word that you've imparted to us. It might dwell richly in our hearts by faith. That might form us into the men and women whom you are created, whom you have created us to be. We receive it by faith, with thanksgiving. May we not hinder the work it has for us. And ultimately, may your gospel go forward and may your kingdom advance. And may every tribe, tongue, and nation fall before your throne, worshiping the lamb who was slain. Jesus, you are the one we desire. Pray this in your holy and your beautiful name. Amen. So according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity... There are currently over 45,000 
Christian denominations in the world. Now, again, many of that can be a little bit misleading because many of those can be grouped into, you know, Baptist denominations, Methodist denominations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but 45,000 separate denominations. Now, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who's bothered immediately by the fact of the denominations. I remember in college talking to someone who said, denominations are evil, and they're a sign of unfaithfulness. And I was like, well, no, sometimes uh, there are practical differences. Are you going to baptize babies or not? Um, but 45,000 makes you wonder what's going on there. Especially when you consider how is the denomination formed. The denomination is formed almost always historically when a group breaks off from another group because they feel they no longer can continue in fellowship for various reasons. And again, there are good reasons to do that, but 45,000, that's a lot of separating, especially when you consider almost all of that has happened since the Reformation, 15, 1500, the last 400 years, 500 years. And it's especially troubling when you consider that Jesus' prayer for his church, the prayer he prayed on the night of his betrayal, was that his followers would be one. And if anything, trends are only getting worse. Now we're so prone to disagreement and separation, we can't even agree within a denomination, so we're going non-denom. Fastest growing branch of Christianity in America is non-denominational Christianity. You don't need to get along with anyone when you're a non-denom church. You just do what you want. And so I think it's appropriate that in our text this morning, we are encountering the most significant conflict and disagreement that the early church ever faced in the first century of, of, of the early church. And it wasn't over insignificant matters like the color of the carpet. It wasn't even over like serious but secondary doctrines. It was a disagreement over the heart of the gospel, over the center of our faith. And because of that, it was a, it was a, it was a conflict that was intense. The emotions were high. Separations were, were already happening. But I think also this, this story gives us great hope for us as we live in a fragmented, growingly isolated time. And the hope for us that we see in this story is that it doesn't have to be like that. Because of the gospel of grace and the foundation it provides for true Christian reconciliation and unity. So I outlined for us this morning to give us a roadmap of where we're going. Our first point is a Christian dispute. Second point, gospel reconciliation. Third point, some further thoughts on church conflict. So again, a quick recap. Paul and Barnabas have finished their first missionary journey in what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a very fruitful ministry, despite opposition. Many people become, became Christians. And here's what is uh, notable for our story today, is that many Gentiles became Christians. And this began to cause some issues. See, you, you may think, well, if you remember Acts, uh, what well, we've been already in Acts, Peter had this vision in Acts 11 uh, where God told him, hey, don't call unclean what, what God had made clean. And then Cornelius and his whole household became Christians, and they were Gentiles. And then it was presented before the church in, its, in Jerusalem. It seems like, okay, we've, we've, we've resolved this. We've moved past it. Gentiles can become Christians. But here's the thing is if you were a Jewish Christian, especially if you're living in Jerusalem, a Gentile Christian was still more of an idea. It was kind of an abstraction. Okay, I understand abstractly that Gentiles can become part of the people of God, but there weren't a whole lot of them around. They're mostly in the church of Antioch. But here, all of a sudden, what had been a kind of steady trickle of Gentiles becoming Christians has become a flood. 
And that begins to drive issues to the surface over exactly what is required of a Gentile joining what had been a Jewish people of God up until that point. And this brings us to chapter uh, 15, verses 1 to 5. Let me read again verses 1 to 5 for us. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So Luke tells us uh, some men came from Judea, likely Jerusalem, maybe even from James himself, and they come to the church of Antioch and they're causing all kinds of havoc because they're telling the Christians there that the Gentile Christians have to be circumcised to be saved. Uh, Again, they're not saying, look, it's a good thing for, for Gentile Christians to follow the Old Testament law or that this is a good thing for a Christian. They're saying, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised, unless you follow the Old Testament law. Again, this is getting at the very heart of of our faith. Um, The stakes are about as high as it can get in this this council that is eventually called. Um, And we see some of the stakes in this, actually, and we look at the letter to the Galatians. Now, the letter to the Galatians, there's some debate into how it fits into the storyline of Acts. I think the best way to make sense of it is that Galatians is written... Uh, in between Paul's first missionary journey and the Jerusalem council. So shortly before the Jerusalem council, it seems to just make the best sense of what Paul writes in Galatians. And so when Paul writes Galatians, he may have actually been on his way to Jerusalem to settle this issue. And so what we see in chapter 2 in Galatians is very likely the same event of what happens here in verses 1 to 5. So I want to read a couple of verses from Galatians 2 because it fills in some details into what was going on in Antioch When these men from Judea came and they are teaching you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul writes this. He says, but when Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Listen to this. For before certain men came from James, James is in Jerusalem, that's the verse one, some men came down from Judea. But before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That's Barnabas. He he was on the missionary journey with Paul. Even he was led astray. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, the theological stakes can't get higher. This is the heart of our faith. No, we are not justified by anything we do. 
When I say justified, we're not made right with God. We are not made righteous in God's eyes. Our best actions, best case scenario are mixed. Mixed motives, mixed outcomes. We are only made righteous by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And so to say, no, 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 it's not just Jesus on the cross in your place, but there's these other things you got to do to be saved, that's adding to the gospel. That's changing the heart of what Christianity is about. But not only are the theological stakes really high, the practical stakes are really high. We're, we're talking about the fellowship of the church. Because again, what happens is when, 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 when these men come to, to Antioch, a diverse church, and begin telling people, no, 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 Gentiles have to follow the law, it begins to split the church. That's why Paul gets so angry at Peter. Because all of a sudden, the Jewish Christians in Antioch, well, they're like, well, you know what? If these Gentile Christians aren't keeping kosher, right? If, if they're not abiding by the Old Testament law, therefore they are unclean. And for me to eat with them makes me unclean. And all of a sudden, the church itself is beginning to fragment. Again, the stakes in this are pretty high. And just, again, I'm trying to paint a picture here of what this looked like. This was, a, this was, this was all, we got to imagine this was, this was not a calm and cool and collected disagreement. People like, oh, let's, you know, let's have a dialogue. When it says when, when these men came in Acts 1, what did Paul and Barnabas do after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them? And that word for dissension has a sense of standing up, open rebellion. It's the word you'd use of a mob riding in the streets. They're like, no, no. As a Kubanek, I imagine there was quite a bit of yelling going on. Maybe not. Maybe they were speaking in, you know, very soft voices. But it, both parties realize the heart of the Christian faith is at stake. And they're coming with irreconcilable differences. And there are lines being drawn in the sand. And this is why the council is called. And again, this is why, guys, this is why this text has, gives me so much hope. I think this spirit, when he, when he inspired Luke to write this account in the way he wrote it, in his infinite understanding, he's picturing you and me and our church and American Christianity. And he's showing us, look, even in the midst of this, as, I mean, guys, as dire as a gospel difference would be, God in his spirit brings about reconciliation. And if he can bring about reconciliation, when it's irreconcilable differences over the gospel itself, and things like how much more can we? When I mean, in my experience, we don't separate over the gospel. So that's our first point: a Christian dispute. Second point is gospel reconciliation. Let's read verses six to twenty-one again. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, "Brothers." You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that you will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, 
And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited to the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in response to this gospel dispute, the church calls us first council. And the leaders of the church of Jerusalem are present, and uh, it seems there's representatives from Antioch, perhaps from other churches, and it's, and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a you know, dumpster fire. Just debate, dispute, and then finally Peter stands up and gives testimony, and it turns the course of events. James confirms it, and that's, and that's how the council ends, just to give you an overview but Peter stands up, and his emphasis when he stands up is, brothers and sisters, God has already done things that reveal his will in this matter. And Peter re refers to his own story of when he was given that vision where God spoke to Peter and said, Peter, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And then Peter goes to a Gentile family, and they all become Christians, uncircumcised, non-kosher, non-Torah-following Gentiles. God makes clean and sends his spirit on them. Peter's like, look, they didn't have to be circumcised before they received the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to begin to do all these good things before God accepted them. It was on faith alone. And Peter gives a warning. He says, look, God has revealed his will by what he's already done through his spirit. And so here he says, why would you test? You know, why are you putting God to the test? Verse 10, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. He has a warning, will these Jewish Christians test God by opposing his plainly revealed will? And then James affirms what Peter has said by saying, not only is this what God has done recently, but this is in accordance with the scriptures too. And there's actual uh, implications for the church from this. So James gets up and quotes Amos to kind of confirm Peter's, Peter's statement. He has this quote about the, the rebuilding the tent of David. That's reference to the promise God made to David about an eternal kingdom. And, and that's obviously fulfilled in, in, in Jesus. But the important thing is, why did God do this? Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. James is saying, look, uh, Christianity wasn't birthed to be a reform movement within Judaism. But it was good news for the whole world. Christ came to restore the, tent, the fallen tent of David so that all mankind might seek the face of God in Jesus Christ. And even more, they don't have to become Jews to be part of the people of God, but what does it say? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It's covenantal language. It's a language that God used with Israel, his people. And he's saying these Gentiles are already those who are called by God's name. So no, 
Gentile Christians don't need to become Jews to become part of the people of God. By faith in what Jesus has done for them, they have become the people of God. And then to summarize the rest of the chapter, the council, this turns the council. They make a decision. No, Gentiles do not need to become Jews. They don't need to be circumcised. Salvation and inclusion in the church is by grace through faith. And in fact, this leads to a freedom for the Christian. Not freedom to do whatever they want. Well, my works don't matter. I'll do whatever I want. But freedom to defer, actually, to their brothers and sisters, right? So the Gentile Christians don't have to keep the law. But some of those uh, exhortations James gives is exhortations in consideration for your Jewish brothers and sisters who may still keep the law. You don't have to just be saved, but now you're free to, to die to your own preferences for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And they write a letter to the Church of Antioch, and they send delegates there, and the church ends encouraged and built up and continuing in the faith. That's how the Jerusalem Council, that's how, that's how the story goes. But we have this gospel reconciliation, and there is a paradigm-shifting theological truth that is, a cent- that is at the center of any Christian reconciliation. We can, we can have reconciliation that's not Christian reconciliation. But there is a paradigm-shifting theological truth here that is at the center of every genuinely Christian reconciliation, and it is the only foundation for Christian unity and reconciliation. And it's that salvation is by grace through faith and the bond that creates among those of us who have turned to Jesus. This is what, this is what Peter's statement hinges on. In, in, in Acts 15, verse, verse 11, Peter says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so what Peter's saying is, look, even though we are Jews and, and have the Old Testament, we live by the law, we recognize that we were received into the family of God, not by anything we've done in order to obey the law or obey God, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's simply by faith through grace. We recognize that. And guess what? The Gentiles also are welcomed into the people of God by the same grace that we were. What do Jews and Gentiles have in common? The answer is almost nothing. They don't share the same culture. They certainly don't share the same language. They don't even share the same, uh, I'm sorry, they they certainly don't share the same religion, and they don't even share the same language. They don't even speak the same language. I want to talk about two diametrically opposed people groups. You've got the Jews and the Gentiles, and that's about as far apart as you can get. But what do they share? They share this experience of the grace of Jesus Christ, and that is the foundation for Christian unity and Christian reconciliation. When I graduated college, um, and, 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 well, I'll get there in a second. Um, they share in the same grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace creates a, a, a kinship of grace. Um, the gospel doesn't create, like, helpful associations among Christians or, like, you know, pragmatic, useful partnerships. It creates a kinship. Well, the New Testament says we're brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm no one's biological relative other than Caleb. I'm not even biologically related to my wife, right? But yet you are all my brothers and sisters by grace. So let me, let me get what I mean by that. When I, this is where I get my story. When I, when I graduated college, I was in a rough place. Um, as a lot of people are when they graduate college. It's a weird time. And, uh, and just a lot of factors in my life, I was, I was in a rough place. And um, I've always struggled with anger. That's my perennial struggle. 
uh, I've seen a lot of grace and growth, um, but I was, I was angry, and I was out of control, and I knew I was out of control, and it scared me. And so I went to my church I was a member at, and I asked to meet with a pastor, and they put me with a guy named Matt Jaber, who became a, a really formative mentor for me in that time of life. In fact, he actually officiated uh, Mark and I's wedding. And as I began to meet with him, uh, I, I began to realize and I learned that oftentimes pride and anger go together. So people who are, are struggle with anger oftentimes are very proud, and likewise people who are proud oftentimes struggle with anger. And Matt gave me an image that stuck with me, that helped me work through some of that at that time. This was the image he gave me. He said, and this image explains our kinship of grace. He said, Mike, the ground before the cross is level. Because I, you know, I'm, I graduated with a degree in philosophy and theology, and I'm, 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 you know, relatively intelligent, and I just thought I had a whole lot to offer. And he's like, it doesn't matter what you think you've accomplished or what you haven't accomplished or what you've done or what you haven't done. The ground's level. Like, no one approaches the, the cross in a Mercedes while someone else has got to walk. We all approach it in the exact same way. We're all the same wretched, hopeless sinners. And we realize as we come before the cross that the worst sin in the world are the sins that I have committed. That's the only one that matters. And my sin has been enough to condemn me forever. And as we weep before the cross, we realize shockingly, absurdly, that Jesus himself took my sin from me. And he bore it himself on the cross. And as we begin to weep our eyes out before the cross, we look to our left and right and we realize there are people kneeling before the cross with us, weeping their eyes out. That's our kinfolk. That's our, our, our kinship of grace. And they're black and they're white and they're rich and they're poor. They're old and they're young. They're liberal and they're conservative. These are now our kinfolk, our kinship of grace. And, and here's the kicker. The only way we ever find true reconciliation and church conflict is when that kinship of grace matters more than any other secondary difference. It can't matter more than a primary difference. What is the primary difference? The gospel, right? We can't have fellowship with those who aren't Christians, but once we've kind of established that like historic orthodoxy gospel agreement, we all approach the same cross like nothing else is more important. Objectively, nothing else is more important. We're not saved because of our intellectual ascent on secondary matters, no matter how important those matters are. We're saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of his wounds shed for us. It's objectively true, and anyone who denies that is, 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 is dangerously close to heresy. Subjectively, the more that we walk in the experience of the cross, of, of imagining ourselves on our knees before the cross and receiving grace, the more that that's a lived reality for us, the more we begin to feel it's just, it's just more important than any secondary difference, political, social, theological, now, I, you know, there, I think there are some very, like, reasonable questions and objections some might have to this. Like, I can imagine someone saying, Mike, are you really saying there's never a good reason to separate other than basic gospel differences? 
And yes, there are exceptions and complications, and I think every case has to be taken individually. And I'm not punting the question, but I just want to say this. I think considering who we are as Americans, that is the wrong question to be asking. Because our tendency isn't to stick it out through thick and thin no matter what because we hold the gospel. Our tendency is 45,000 denominations. We know what our heart is tending towards as Western, um, very American individuals. It's like me, my Bible, and Jesus, that's all I need. And if you disagree with me, peace. That's our tendency. And so what I would say is the right question to ask is, are, are not there secondary differences that might require us breaking fellowship? That's not the question. The question to ask is, is there any reason we can think of to stick together? And if there are, let's focus on those. And we'll split when we need to because it's in our blood. We're Protestant Baptist Americans. But let's focus on the gospel. Again, the foundation and ground for reconciliation in Acts 15 is the fact that Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And despite the massive theological differences between those who believed you had to keep the Old Testament and those who didn't, it was enough for reconciliation. It was enough for fellowship. We are brothers and sisters in grace, approaching the cross on level ground. We're recipients of the same unconditional grace that binds us together regardless of class differences, race differences, educational differences, political differences, even theological differences. So that's our first two points, a Christian dispute. Second point is gospel reconciliation. Third point, some further thoughts on church conflict. I got a lot of th thoughts on church conflict in case you haven't noticed. Um, and so these are just general, I think, reflections on Acts 15 that didn't really fit into my outline. I don't know if this is homiletically appropriate. Um, but I'm the preacher, so I can do it. So some further thoughts. First thought, Peter being willing to change his mind and to admit that he was wrong was a turning point. Again, look at verses 6 and 7. The apostles and the elders were gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Luke is a man of few words, after a very controversial, contentious debate, what's the turning point? It's when Peter stands up and gives his testimony. Now let's remember what we learned from Galatians 2. Peter had been publicly rebuked by Paul. And, there, and Paul does not say that Peter agreed with him, which I think in the letter of Galatians, if Peter had agreed, that would have been a very important argument for Paul to include. The idea is Paul uh, publicly rebukes Peter, and Peter doesn't agree. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter's been publicly shamed. And the turning point in the Jerusalem council, and the reason why the church avoids a split is because Peter's willing to stand up and say, you know what, I got this wrong. And Paul's right. Was Peter being willing to stand up and change his position and admit he was in fact wrong? That, that became concerning. Because from that point, then it says, you know, the assembly falls silent. And then they're able to listen to Barnabas and Paul to share about what Jesus had done. Up until that point, they couldn't even hear the testimony of what God had done. You know, it's interesting, in any given conflict, like sometimes there's a clear right and a clear wrong. Sometimes one party is more right, one party is more wrong. Sometimes you just don't know. And almost always, because we are dirty, rotten humans, sinful humans, there's a whole lot of personality conflict in it too, and it makes it really hard to distinguish what's going on. 
But I think here's where I'm getting at, is that Christians being willing to admit when we're wrong is often the turning point for church conflict. And so I think as Christians, we have to, have a, we have to hold things, like two things in tension. One is that we, we, we serve an infallible God who never gets anything wrong. He doesn't change. He doesn't evolve. He's true for all eternity. And he's given us a word that is absolutely true and trustworthy. And yet at the same time, we have no confidence in, in our ability to reason. And we may get things wrong. We've got to be able to hold those two things in tension. And, and, and I'll just tell you, the, the reason why I think this is because I've been deeply influenced by Luther and by Calvin, and I believe in total depravity. Uh, and I believe that that also affects our minds as theologians, Reformation theologians have throughout the centuries. This is what they call the noetic effects of sin. Sin doesn't just affect our desires and our behaviors. It affects our ability to reason. That's why God, right, God is truth. There is no truth outside of God. And yet people can reason to the conviction that God does not exist. How does that happen? It's because our brains are broken. And we don't always think right. And Luther's great reformational principle is that when we become Christians, we are simultaneously righteous in God's eyes and sinner. We're justified in sinner. And so that means is that when we place our faith in Christ, it's not like we all of a sudden become these like Mother Teresa's. I still struggle with anger and pride. I still struggle with doubt. And likewise, we still get stuff wrong. And by the way, this is why things like, you know, the great creeds of our faith are so important. It's why we recite the Apostles' Creed. Because it's something that stands outside of our individual context that Christians throughout the centuries have affirmed. And so there's just a greater likelihood. I mean, anything outside of Scripture can be wrong. There's a greater likelihood that, hey, this is, this is true. Because Christians throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries have, fav- have, have, um, have affirmed it. But if we can't fathom the fact that we might be wrong, then we'll never be able to admit when, in fact, we are wrong. And brothers and sisters, this has got to begin with our leaders. Right? So I'm pointing this at myself. General rule of thumb. General rule. It's not a law. A leader who's never admitted they're wrong on anything, that's a big red flag. Big red flag. Uh, Augustine, of all people, published retractions at the end of his life saying, I got this wrong. And they weren't minor retractions. Again, the reason why is leaders have such influence, and when leaders aren't able to admit when they're wrong, I mean, what if Peter had had not been able to admit, you know, I was wrong, and it was embarrassing to be publicly shamed. And what if he'd been more worried about that than about the truth? Could have had a very different outcome to the Jerusalem Council. And so, again, you know, as a leader, I can tell you, every leader is great at being right. I flourish when I'm right. I crush it out of the park every time. But the medal of a leader is proved when they're able to humbly admit that they're wrong and ask for forgiveness. So that's our first further thought. It was Peter's admitting that he was wrong. That's, that, turned the whole, that turned the whole situation. Second further thought on, on church conflict, deference to preferences and even non-gospel theological differences of other Christians is evidence that you're a gospel Christian, that the grace of Jesus Christ is gripping you. Again, I'm speaking in broad strokes. There's complex situations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Caveat, caveat, caveat. But I think our tendency in America to split, in American Christianity to split over secondary differences is a cancer in our souls. I read an article by um, 
Tim Challies, a Reformed Baptist Canadian blogger. His kids actually went to Boyce. Um, some of you may know known some of them. And this article is a couple years old, but still very relevant. And he argued that the gospel, when it's believed and, 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 and applied and, and loved and cherished, it ought to cultivate this kind of big tent diversity on secondary issues. Okay? He, he writes this. He says, as we look around a church, we ought to see people with a wide range of differences experiencing the deepest kind of unity. Different races and ethnicities, different ages and socioeconomics, different convictions on politics, different convictions on education, different convictions on vaccinations. That gives you an idea of what year he wrote this. And so on. The gospel that fostered unity between vegetarians and meat eaters is plenty strong enough to foster unity between maskers and non-maskers. But in contrast, what he, what he argues is, in contrast to this diversity and unity that ought to foster, he says, all of us have a little bit of a cultist within us. All right. A cult is, a, it, it, you know, a, a, someone who belongs in a cult is all about uniformity. And we all have a little bit of longing for that kind of cultic whatever, of being in a cult within us. And so he writes, the inner cultist tries to convince us that life would be better and relationships would be easier and the church would be safer if only everyone was the same. The same as me. It's the important part. Yet such a community would display little of the gospel because it would require little divine grace. It takes no divine power to foster community amid uniformity, but it takes great divine power to bind together those who are in so many ways so very different and those who continue to live by conscience who continue to value their culture, who continue to hold to their convictions. It is very human to long for uniformity. But gospel grace binds together those who are very different in a kinship of grace. And again, the closer we align ourselves with the cross and the gospel of grace, the more non-orthodoxy level differences in our brothers and sisters we'll be willing to tolerate because that's what the gospel does. Even differences concerning deep conviction, such as a Jewish Christian's commitment to the law of Moses, would not have been a light thing. Thirdly, third and last consideration, reconciliation doesn't mean every question is answered and every, address, every concern is addressed fully. Acts 15, what's addressed? Well, you don't have to be circumcised or follow the law to be a Christian. What's not answered? What is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law? That's just like, they're just like, huge question. Christians have debated for two millennia with no universal consensus. That's a giant elephant in the room that's just not addressed. True gospel reconciliation doesn't mean every question is going to be answered. That every tension is going to be resolved. Especially when it's doctrinal conflict like we see in Acts 15. And the reason for that is because the answer to church conflict isn't uniformity, but it's the cross. Right? Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about what's the, what's the basis of reconciliation. And I'm going to tell you what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, for Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and reconciled us to God through addressing every concern, answering every question, and solving every tension. It's not what Paul says, but that's what we want. That's a human tendency. What Paul says is that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. And by the cross has reconciled us both to God. 
which means genuine Christian unity, brothers and sisters, will always be messy because the cross is a messy business. And because, again, our peace is not uniformity, but it's Jesus himself. And, of course, what, is, what does Jesus do? Well, well, he takes broken, dysfunctional, sinful people, and he brings them into the family of God. And, again, keeping Luther's great reformational insight, we remain simultaneously justified and sinner. We remain the same dysfunctional and broken and sinful people. And so, yeah, Christian unity is always a mess. It's always a mess. But that's the cross. It doesn't require us to be well-adjusted, upstanding citizens who always pay our taxes and treat one another with decency and respect. But the cross calls everyone on the same equal ground. And there it gives us grace that flows from our Savior's wounds. Brothers and sisters, it's grace that will bind us together inseparably, despite whatever differences we might have. And it's the kinship of grace that will empower us to be the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we long to be reminded once again of the power of your grace to heal what's broken, to unite what's divided. We see how you did it in Acts 15. We ask that you do it in our churches, in our midst, that we might be as our Lord wanted us to be. We might be one, not because we think the exact same thoughts all the time, but because we kneel at the same cross. We've received the same grace and forgiveness. We worship the same Lord. Help us to think clearly of these things, but above all, may we submit ourselves fully to what you reveal in your word. May that always be what unites us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.